jail. First day out of prison. Maybe you've been in there for six months. Maybe like some people, you've been in there for decades. Maybe for some people, you've been in there for you know, over half your life at some point in time. But you, you have that moment where you are now released. You are, you've paid your, your you've done your time. You've, you've paid your sentence, right? You've fulfilled your sentence. In fact, I was reading an article recently about a guy who was falsely accused and spent 25 years in prison. And it was all about what he did when he got out of jail for the first time. And when they were talking to him, they said, well, what was it like? What was your freedom all about? What did you do with this experience. He said the first thing that he did was he, he wanted a, a real toothbrush because I guess in jail, they give you this tiny little toothbrush. And if you don't have enough money, you have to use the state toothpaste. And he said, the state toothpaste is disgusting. So he said he wanted a real toothbrush. And so he used that real toothbrush to be able to brush his teeth. And he said he brushed his teeth twice after he got out of jail, right back to back with each other, because he wanted that experience of, of just feeling that, that cleanness in his mouth. The other guys that were interviewed in this article as well said they did things like they, they took a shower by themselves because that's not something that you get to do in jail. Um, they said they, one guy said, I went to Subway. I got a veggie sub from Subway. I'm like, really, dude, a veggie sub? Like, that's, the, that's what you wanted. That's what that guy wanted, his freedom. He walked out and he said, you know what I'm going to do with my freedom? I'm going to go to Subway. Another guy went to a 7-Eleven to buy a soda and a pack of gum because he missed those things when he was in jail. He missed those things in prison and he wanted to, to have soda and he wanted to have a, a pack again. Somebody else was waiting for their ride and was sitting outside of the prison and there was a, a, a bench there and they were sitting next to uh, this lady who was sitting there and she looked over and this guy was now in his, his street clothes, not in his prison garments, but she recognized that he was a prisoner and she said, well, you know, how long have you been out? And he said, is, is that obvious? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, about 10 minutes. And this guy had been in, again, for decades and didn't know what a smartphone was. And so she pulled out her iPhone and she said, do you have anybody that you'd like to call? And he said, well, I'd love to call my mom. And she handed him the phone and then she realized he had no idea how to work an iPhone, didn't know how to open it up, access it, anything like that, because he had been in prison for so long and hadn't had access to those things. But he wanted to call his mom, all that to say, his freedom, that's what he wanted to do. Another guy said he went to GameStop and bought an Xbox and a bunch of Xbox video games because he needed to keep himself on the straight and narrow, and he knew that was the way that he was going to do that, is by filling up his time with video games. Another guy said he went to Walmart, and that one was sad because he said he walked into Walmart, and he was overwhelmed by just this crushing feeling of the difference between being in jail and then walking into Walmart and having the freedom of being in Walmart. And he thought everybody was looking sideways at him, that everybody was suspicious of him, that everybody was waiting for him to do something criminal and end up back in jail. So he actually had to walk out. But all that to say, these experiences of freedom, something that we take for granted so much in our lives, because we're not in prison, we're not in jail. And so when we're not in prison, we don't think much of the freedom that we have. Well, likewise, you and I have been freed or set free, that is, in Christ. And the question I want us to ask tonight is, what are we doing with the freedom that we have in Christ? Some of you have been free in Christ because you've been a Christian now for five, six, seven, eight years, maybe some of you longer than that. And so now it's, it's old hat for you to think, well, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer imprisoned by sin. I'm no longer bound by my sin. Now I'm free in Christ. And you've been a believer for so long that for you, that's no big deal anymore. It's common. And so 
you don't think about, okay, how should I be using the freedom that I have in Christ because you've taken it for granted for so long? Some of you are on the, the opposite end of that spectrum. You are a brand new Christian out there. And you're thinking to yourself, man, what amazing news it is that I've been set free from sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ. And you're excited to use your freedom in Christ. Well, Paul's going to give us an understanding in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15 tonight of some ways that we should be using our freedom and a couple ways how we should be avoiding using our freedom now that we are in Christ and have been set free in Christ. Galatians 5, pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read down through verse 5. Paul writes this. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. You remember Paul's been arguing against the law, right? For chapters really one through four. Not really against the law, against striving to be justified or made right before God by obedience. Paul's been saying, look, if you want to be accepted by God, it's not about you fulfilling a, a checklist. It's not about you fulfilling this list of external obligations and requirements about looking a certain way, sounding a certain way, dressing a certain way, believing a certain way, thinking and acting a certain way. No, it's about one thing. It's about faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. That's been Paul's whole argument here. So he's saying, look, you have been set free. Set free from what specifically is Paul talking about? From imprisonment to the law. Which, what was imprisonment to the law? It was us feeling like we, we don't measure up. Remember, that's what the law is there to do. The law is there to remind me that I am a sinner. The law is there to remind me that I can't be good enough. I can't be holy enough. I can't be righteous enough before God. I can't do it. That's what the law was there to do. And before I become a Christian, what that means is that I'm imprisoned. I have no way out because the only way out from under the imprisonment of the law is what? Jesus. It's the gospel. It's faith in Jesus because Jesus did what the law couldn't do. Jesus perfectly obeyed and gave us that righteousness, right? As we put our faith in him. But that's that freedom that we have in Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What? From the law. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In so many ways, this is a, a summary statement of everything that Paul has written here. Stand firm in your freedom of Christ. Don't go back to the law. Don't, now that you're saved, now that you're a Christian, don't all of a sudden start thinking about, you need to go back to the law to be justified by the law. He said, no, stand firm in your freedom in Christ. Stand firm, be immovable is the idea there. It's a word that shows up in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. There Paul says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. Philippians 4.1, Paul uses it again. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, for now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.14-15, Paul says here, to this he called you 
through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm, be immovable, right? If you've ever watched a, a football game, which even if you are not a football fan, you have this image in your mind, right? Of these grown men wearing spandex and plastic shoulder pads and running into each other, right? Well, you think about those, those big, ginormous offensive linemen, and they have a job, and their job is to protect who? The quarterback, the guy that's throwing the ball or handing the ball off. And as soon as that ball is hiked, they know that the defensive line, whose job is to try to get to the quarterback and sack the quarterback and tackle the quarterback, they know that the defensive line is going to run into them with every ounce of strength that they have. The defensive line is going to try to knock them back, knock them off their feet, move them out of the way so that they can get to the quarterback. So when the offensive line comes out to the, the line of scrimmage and they get ready to hike the ball, they get down into their stance and they get ready and they set themselves so that when that ball is snapped, they can stand firm against the attack of the defense. It's that idea that Paul's driving at here. It's a, a military concept as Paul is developing it here that as, as you went into battle, you wanted to have a good stance so that when you engage the enemy that you wouldn't be knocked off, that you wouldn't be knocked down so that you wouldn't be killed by that. So in, in a lot of sense, to stand firm was to preserve your own life, to make sure that you were doing everything that you could to make sure that you weren't going to be defeated by the enemy. And Paul is telling Christians and Paul is telling the Galatians and by extension, Paul is now telling us that now that you are in Christ, he says, stand firm, therefore, don't go back to the law. Stay where you're at. Remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee. Paul used to be a guy that loved the law. Philippians chapter three talks about that, doesn't it? Paul used to be a guy that looked to the law and boasted that he was righteous because of the law. And now you have him telling us in Galatians chapter three, hey, look, don't go back to the law. Don't go back there. No, stand firm where you are. Why? Because Paul knew what he had in Christ was so much better. Paul knew that what he had in Christ was freedom and what he had in the law was slavery, imprisonment. And because it was so clear to Paul, right? It'd be like going to, to a guy who was that man who spent 25 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit, right? And he gets freed. Imagine him then going back to the jail, knocking on the door going, hey, can I get back in there? It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? Well, it's the same thing when we go back to the law and knock back on the, law, the door of the law and we say, hey, can, can you be my, my master again? Can you, can you own me again? Can you imprison me and show me how I can't measure up again? Paul's saying, don't do that. He says in verse two, look, he says, behold, listen, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to you again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Listen, this isn't really about circumcision. This is about the motivation behind it. This is about accepting it because you want to be justified by it. This is about, I want to obey that part of the law. And so that part of the law is going to make me more acceptable to God. So I'm going to do this to be more acceptable to God. That's the problem that Paul is tackling here. And he's saying, look, if you do that, man, good luck. Because if you want to do that, then, hey, I've got news for you. You're obligated to keep the entirety of the law, the whole thing. You can't just pick and choose what you want to keep. If you want to be justified before God by the law, you've got to do the whole thing. You've got to be perfect. You've got to bat a thousand in obedience to the law. 
something that's impossible. This isn't a new concept. Even in Galatians, it's not a new concept. Galatians 3.10, Paul already talked about this idea. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under what? A curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by or live by or obey all things written in the book of the law and do them. How many things written in the book of the law? All of them. So Paul's saying, you guys who want to be holier than thou, and you're going to hold up your standard in your list and say, hey, look, you've got to measure up by these checklist things here. And if you don't do these things, well, you're not a good enough Christian. If you don't do these things, then you're not acceptable to God. If you don't do these things, then you're not as holy as I am. Paul's saying, I've got news for you. You're obligated to do the entirety of it. Stop picking and choosing. And he's telling the Galatians, look, stand firm because they're coming after you. The world is going to come after you. The enemy is going to come after you. And Paul's argument here is he's saying this, you cannot have Jesus righteousness and self-righteousness. If you want self-righteousness, you are excluding yourself from Christ is what he's saying here. Because Jesus righteousness is all you need. Because Jesus righteousness is fully sufficient for you. Point number one tonight is this. Battle the temptation to do what Jesus already did. That's what the law is offering you. Battle the temptation to do what Jesus already did. The law is asking you to do what Jesus already did, and that is to justify yourself before God. And our response is, I don't need to be justified by the law because I'm justified in Christ. Listen to Paul's language. It's strong. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul's done at this point, guys. He's four chapters in, now five chapters. And he's just, he's done. I mean, his, his angst level, his frustration is, is building through this argument here. And he's getting to this point and he's going, look, if you don't get it by now, I'm going to not pull punches anymore. I'm going to be direct with you. If you want to be justified by the law, guess what? You are severed from Christ. That word severed means divorced. You are separated from him. You are cut off from Jesus. Jesus is of no benefit to you if you are looking to be self-righteous in the eyes of God. Yeah, again, it's, it's strong language here. My son, Sam, who's one of my twins, who's three, he, he likes to do what, what I like to do. And so when I'm out on the barbecue, on the grill, he'll come out and he'll want, he'll have a pair of my wife's kitchen tongs and he has those and he wants to come turn the hot dogs or flip the burgers on the grill because he wants to be like dad, right? Well, it's the same thing now with, with the vacuum. He saw me vacuuming the other day and he was like, I want to do that. But the problem is he can't hold the, the full vacuum. It's too heavy for him. So we detached the, the wand part of it and we gave it to him. And my little three-year-old takes that and he begins pushing that over the carpet, thinking that he's vacuuming just like dad. And we look at that and we're like, nah, that's cute. I mean, he's not really doing anything. It's certainly not effective because there's no, there's no suction there. There's no vacuum part there. So this is really just moving dirt around on the carpet more than anything else. This is not really helping anybody, but hey, it's cute. He's three. He wants to be, he wants to do what I do, right? Guys, when we try to make ourselves holy in God's sight through obedience to the law, he doesn't find it cute. He thinks it's an insult. Because what we're trying to do and what we're saying, in effect, when we try to justify ourselves by the law, is we are saying to God, you know what? The cross wasn't really enough for me. 
yeah, Jesus died and all, and I'm grateful for that, but now let me kind of take the reins. And it's looking at the greatest sacrifice that the father could have ever made by giving his son to die on the cross for our sins. And it's saying, thanks, but no thanks to that. I'll take over from here. I can do a better job than Jesus did at, right, at making myself righteous. Do you see how heinous that is in the eyes of God? So Paul again is saying, look, you're, you've been set free. Don't use your freedom to now go back to the law and try to make yourself justified by the, by the law before God. It's an insult to him. You're trying to do what Jesus already did and Jesus did it better. Jesus did it way better than we did. It's our, our works of obedience. In, in some ways, it is like my son backing me because it isn't doing anything. It isn't effective at all for us to try to be good enough for God to love us, to be obedient enough for him to be satisfied with us. See, if we don't have Christ, we're vacuuming without a plug. We're vacuuming without the suction. We're, we're, we're not doing any good at all. All we're doing is spreading filth all over the place. This is why Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6 about the righteous deeds of the people of Israel. He said, look, we've all become like one who's unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Filthy garment. It detests God. It's repulsive to God for us to bring our righteousness to him and our righteous deeds and say, will you love me now? The reason it detests him and it repulses him is because he's given us Christ. And he said, look, I will love you if you are in Christ. I will love you if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. That's where my love is anchored. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5, 2, look, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you because you're trying to do what he already did. And if you want to do what he already did, God's going to go, fine, then you don't get Christ at all. Good luck on your own. Y'all, this is a common temptation that so many who have grown up in the church are going to battle and going to face. And it's the temptation to say, I'm a Christian because I've never known anything different. It's the temptation to say, you know what? I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm saved because my family is a Christian family and I grew up in a Christian home. The temptation to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm a Christian because I've been at Compass Bible Church my entire life. I've come up through the ranks, so I've always been a Christian. It's the temptation to say, you know what, I'm a Christian because I know a lot about the Bible. I know a lot of doctrine. I know a lot of theology. I can talk a lot about, about a lot of big words. I've read Calvin, so I'm a Christian. Or maybe you say, I'm a, I'm a Christian because I can tell you what the gospel is. I know what the gospel is. I know the gospel and I believe the gospel. So therefore, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Or maybe it's, I'm a Christian because fill in the blank, whatever. And when we fill in that blank with anything other than I'm a Christian because I've trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. When we put anything else in the blank, what we are doing is we are looking to our own merit, our own righteousness, our own accomplishments, our own identity, our own worth to justify us before God. And we're doing exactly what Paul's talking about here. And the warning is a stern warning the danger of falling away from grace, the danger of being severed. Well, is he talking about me losing my salvation? I would say no. 
John says in 1 John 2.19, he says of those that leave the church, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. Meaning if, if, if somebody walks away and never comes back to the church, then what we would have to conclude is their profession of faith was based in something that wasn't Christ. It was, I'm a good person. I've been around the church my whole life. I believe intellectually the gospel, but I'm not truly committed in faith and trust to the gospel. And Paul's saying, look, there's a danger. If you are trusting in something other than Christ, you will be cut off. You will be severed and you will have fallen away from Christ. See, students, the enemy doesn't just come to us and tempt us with lusts and murderous thoughts or hatred or anger or theft. He doesn't just come with all the negative things that for some of you, it may be easy to go, well, I don't want any of that stuff. See, the enemy is just as dangerous when he comes to us and he tempts us by offers of self-righteousness and pride in our own godliness. And I'd venture to guess that most of us in this place struggle with that way more than any of those other things. We have got to remember Christ has done it all for us. It is finished with what he said on the cross. We don't need to do what he's already done. And so we need to guard against that temptation, battle against that temptation. Verse five, he continues, Paul does, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. In other words, we're waiting for a future fullness of the righteousness that we will inherit. Verse six, for in Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, sorry, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now he turns and he's addressing the Galatian believers, Christians there. He says, look, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from God. It's not from him who calls you, verse eight. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Look, church, be on guard because a little bit of this false teaching can get in and permeate through the entirety of the church. I have confidence though, verse 10, in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But he says, look, if I brother still preached circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow, but you didn't think you were gonna hear that tonight. Paul's heated here. He's passionate. Why? Because of what's at stake, right? He wants the Galatian Christians to use their freedom for something that's going to glorify God. He wants them to use their freedom well, to stand firm in their freedom in Christ. And he knows that there are enemies that are trying to tempt them and pull them away from that. And at the end of that, just to make everything clear, he's like, look, I wish they would mutilate themselves. Look, they're talking about circumcision. Go ahead and do the whole thing. Let's get rid of it all. Let's just get it, get it over with here. You think... Paul was some timid, meek little guy writing letters in a prison cell. No, he was a pretty passionate guy. He's pretty intense what he's writing here. But he begins with this statement, for through the spirit by faith in verse five, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The righteousness that you and I now have in Christ is ours in the form of a deposit, which is the Holy Spirit. In other words, we don't have the full righteousness of God, which is why you and I still sin, Right? So we have the deposit of the righteousness. God has given us the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 through 14. He says, in him, 
Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. That's the, the word in the Greek there means guarantee or the deposit, right? Of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So listen, when you go to rent an apartment someday, and maybe some of you have already gone through this, you have to put a, a deposit down before you take possession of it, right? And that deposit is saying, hey, I'm good for it. I'm planning to take occupancy of this place. You have my guarantee because I'm putting money forward. I'm putting something that costs something to me. I'm putting that forward to guarantee that I'm gonna take this place. Well, that's what God has done for us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit to say, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna get you. You're mine. You will be with me. The Holy Spirit is that guarantee. It's that deposit that God has placed in us as the guarantee of the future righteousness that we will know fully when we are in his presence. So Paul's saying, look, right now, we have a righteousness through the Spirit by faith, and we wait that future fullness of the righteousness. We have that hope in the fullness of the righteousness. Why is he talking about righteousness? Again, because there were people that were saying, you have to fill your righteousness by obedience to the law. And Paul's saying, that's not our goal. That day is yet future, and we're waiting for that day. He says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, listen, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So Paul's addressing the other side of the equation too, going, hey, look, those of you that are on the opposite side of this, don't be patting yourself on the back. Neither of these things count for anything. What matters, he says, is what? Faith working through love. Faith, that's the kernel, that's the core, that's the foundation of the gospel. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ as who he said he was in the scriptures and in what he said he did and what he did in the scriptures, then you don't have salvation. You just don't. If all you have is good works, you've got nothing. You have to have faith. You have to have that foundation. But faith then, he says, which works through what? Love. Faith working through love or faith that produces love. Uh, we brought this up before in this series, I'm sure of it, but let's think back to the scene again. Jesus is approached by this religious Jewish man, this expert in the law. And the, the lawyer comes up to Jesus and says to him, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers him and says, what? You shall love God with everything. And by the way, here's the second, what? Love one another. Love God, love others. Those are the two greatest commandments. And Jesus says, in fact, every single law boils down to either love God or love others. If you look back through the Old Testament, if you look through the Bible, if you look through all the different commands in scripture, it's all gonna come down to either love God or love others or some combination of those two. Jesus is summing up the, the entirety of it in the words of love. And see guys, that's what faith is gonna do in our lives. The faith that believes the gospel is a faith that produces a love for God and a love for others. And so Paul's saying, look, you were running so well after those things in verse seven. You were running after that. You were doing that. You had the faith and it was producing this love for God and love for others. These other people have crept in and they've distracted you. Who's doing that? He's asking. He says, but look, I, I, even if they're doing that, I, I have confidence in you. He says that you're going to stand firm. And he says, and as for them, look, they're going to, they're going to get theirs. They're going to pay the penalty for what they are doing. Your false teachers are so insidious, right? 
There's a perversion of the gospel that twists it into something that can't save. And they're not to be tolerated. They're not to be coddled. They're not to be, you know, hey, put an arm around them and be like, hey, it's okay, no big deal, don't worry about it. No, they are to be rebuked. They're to be called out. Like Paul is doing here, they are to be warned and say, look, if you continue this way, you are gonna end up in the fires of hell because of what they're doing. And Paul's reminding his people, Paul's reminding his believers, Paul's reminding some of the very people that he shared the gospel with, right? And he's telling them, look, remember what the foundation is. Remember what the basic is. Remember what is your goal and your call in life. And that is to have trust in the gospel and let that faith in Jesus produce love in your life, love for God and love for others. So as you think about your freedom in Christ, what else should I be doing with my freedom in Christ besides battling the temptation to do what Jesus did? Well, our second thing that you should do, the second point tonight is this. Pursue godliness out of a love for Jesus, not out of a compulsion. Pursue godliness out of a love for Christ, not out of compulsion. That's how we use our freedom. Our freedom should be used to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in godliness, to grow in holiness. Absolutely, God wants that from us. But why? He wants that from us because we love Jesus. Not because we feel like we have to. Not because we feel some burden. Not because we feel compelled to. Not because we feel obligated to. But because we love Jesus. This goes back to something that we started talking about at the very beginning of the summer, which was loving Jesus more than anything else. Loving Jesus most that when we sin, we sin because what we are in effect saying about our sin is, Jesus, I love this sin more than I love you. And so our goal as Christians, as we lean into our faith, as we lean into the gospel, as we lean into our relationship with the Lord, is to cultivate a love for Christ that's gonna cause us to love him more, love the things that he loves, hate the things that he hates, and to grow in Christ-likeness as a response and as a result of that. And according to Paul, that love comes from faith in Christ. It comes from the gospel. So if you've been set free in Christ, your relationship with Jesus is going to produce a love for Jesus. And if you're sitting there tonight going, man, I just don't know what that is. This is an opportunity for you to examine yourself, right? As Paul says, to see whether or not you're really in the faith. Because this is one of those times where we may have been tempted to put something else in that blank. Your relationship with Jesus is not meant to just produce a greater love for doctrine in your life. It's not meant to produce a greater love for knowledge in your life. Your love for Jesus is not meant to just produce a greater love for obedience in your life. And certainly your love for Jesus is not meant to produce in your life just an apathy towards Christianity or towards godliness. No, your, your love for Christ, your relationship with Jesus is gonna produce a greater and greater and greater, exponentially, infinitely growing love for him. And what's that love gonna do? That love is gonna produce a desire for more godliness in your life. You can't sit here tonight and tell me, I love Jesus, but be harboring all kinds of sin in your life. There's a disconnect there. 
And if we're Jesus, if Jesus were here tonight, and if Jesus were sitting at your table tonight with you, and you were to look him in the eye as the omniscient God who knows everything, could you honestly tell him, Jesus, I love you? If he knew everything that was going on in your life right now. Could you look at the one who died on the cross for your sins and say to him, I love you? If you had pockets of sin in your life that you just weren't willing to give up to follow him. Loving Christ is going to produce a greater desire for godliness. And that desire for godliness is in turn going to produce a, a hatred for sin. And in turn, we're talking about our, our own sin. Galatians 5.17 says the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. That there's a war going on inside of us. And Paul's saying here, we need to use our freedom to grow in our love for Jesus because our faith is going to produce love. Faith is going to work itself out in love, right? And that love for Christ is going to in turn transform our lives, that we will grow in Christ-likeness. We will grow in godliness. In order to fill up our righteousness here? No, why? Because our righteousness is something we're waiting for still. But we're going to grow in godliness because we love Jesus. So pursue godliness out of a love for Christ, not out of compulsion. Not because if you don't, then you're in trouble. If you don't, then you're not godly enough. If you don't, then you're failing to keep the law. No, it's not because of that at all. It's because you love him. And that's going to transform things. Well, Paul says in verse 13, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Again, he's reiterating that. He's repeating that idea. You were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is filled up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not also consumed by one another. The Christian life, y'all, is not a solo sport, but a team sport. There is no Lone Ranger Christian. There's no such thing as somebody who says, well, I'm part of the universal church, but I'm not part of the local church. This thing called Christianity is meant to be lived out together with one another, right? And so all of us have been set free in Christ who are truly in Christ. And now Paul's addressing how that should look like as we relate to one another. He's saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh with infighting and division and slander and all that stuff that goes along with sinful relationships here. He's saying, don't do that. Instead, no, use your freedom in a way to love one another, in a way to serve one another, right? When you grow up and you move out of mom and dad's house, you get increased freedoms, don't you? But I'm sure if you have parents that were involved in your life in a good way, or maybe grandparents that were involved in your life in a good way, or somebody that was, hopefully somebody at one point in time pulled you aside and said, hey, look, you've got a lot more freedom, but with a, a lot more freedom comes a lot more what? Responsibility. Yeah, you guys are like, oh yeah, I heard that one. <laughs> but it's true, right? And now that you, some of you are out on your own, you, you get that. It's like my kids that are like, dude, when I grow up, I'm going to give my kids candy whenever they ask. And I used to say that too. And guess what I don't do? In fact, today, multiple times, I told my kids, no, you can't have any candy. Why? Because I know better now. Am I free to give my kids candy whenever they want to have candy? Sure, I'm free to do that. But it's not the better part of wisdom. In fact, it's also not loving to them. Paul's saying this, look, you've been set free from the obligation to obey the law from Jesus. You've been set free from this 
slavery to the law. But Paul's saying, Jesus is still our Lord. Jesus is still our authority, right? So we need to be careful about how we use our freedom now that we're free. We need to not use it as an opportunity for the flesh. That's Paul in Romans chapter six, right? When he's saying, look, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he anticipates the question. He says, so then should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? What does he say in response to that? No! He says, no, absolutely not. He says, for you've died to sin. How can you go on to continue to live in it? Well, Paul's saying here, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't think that now you've been set free from Christ, free in Christ, that now you can just go out and live however you want to live and it doesn't matter. No, freedom in Christ is freedom that's governed by a love, a love for God. And what's that second commandment? A love for each other, right? So here's the deal with sin, guys. Sin is never going to be a loving act towards another person. And sometimes it's not a loving act towards yourself. You can't say I'm loving someone else while sinning against them. Love God and love others. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. There Paul quotes the section that we talked about earlier. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul's saying, look, if you get this wrong, it could destroy the church. He wanted the stakes to be clear. So as we think about how do I use my freedom in Christ, battling the temptation to do what Jesus did, pursuing godliness out of a love for Jesus, and then finally, I want to spend my days loving like Jesus loved. Loving like Jesus loved. See, salvation is a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a shift from loving and living for self to loving Christ and living for him and living for others. John 13, 34 and 35, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this to his followers, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Okay, that's verse 34. Maybe we remember that. How about this? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Okay? Jesus is saying, here's what's going to tell people that you are Christians. You know what he says? Your love for one another. Your love for one another. Not your doctrine, not your theology, not your books, not your bumper stickers that you slap on the back of the car, Matt Bates. No, your love for one another. That's going to be the defining marker. 1 John 3, 14, John says, we know that we have passed out of death to life because what? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Again, did you catch that? Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for others. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is 
love. Look, guys, it boils down to this. The Christian life is about loving Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you're going to love others. And if you don't, then you have a disconnect in that first part of the equation, your love for Jesus. If your love for Jesus is not producing a love for the people of Christ, if your love for Jesus is not producing a love for those who don't know Christ, if your love for Jesus is not doing those things, then you don't have a love for Jesus. The Bible could not be clearer on that. Jesus makes this a defining characteristic, a defining marker of the person who is in Christ. Guys, this whole passage that we've looked at tonight, if I can kind of sum it up this way. The Christian life is not easy. I don't want to say that. It's not. There's a lot that's hard about it. Yet at the same time, there is a freedom that Paul's talking about here for us to obey God and even do the hard things knowing that it can't touch us. That the opposition that we face, the worst they can do, like Jesus said, they can kill the body. And right now, I know where you're sitting right now tonight with your whole life in front of you, you think, well, that sounds like a pretty big deal. I get that and I feel that and I can resonate with that. However, I, let me just tell you, the older you get, the less of a big deal that becomes. The closer that you get to eternity, the, the more you want to be there. And so this Christian life, the ideal that Paul's talking about here is just this freedom that allows you to have this abiding joy and and. and and to go through life and to do like what the apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter four to say, man, I, I'm going to write to you from a prison cell, not knowing if I'm going to die tomorrow. And I'm going to tell you this, you know what? Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice always in him. It's this ability to just be steadfast, to be firm, to be immovable. And to know God's got you. It's an ability to look at something like COVID and be like, dude, I don't like the masks and I don't like the distancing and I don't like the fact that I have to do weird things to make people feel comfortable, like wear a mask when I go in to pick up a box of donuts. Like, I don't like that at all, but dude, whatever. People are terrified that COVID is, like the world is ending. Okay, okay, fine. It, we, we don't have to fear that. This election that's coming up. You don't have to fear the outcome of that. You don't have to be so bound by everything else, everything that the world wants you to fret over and have angst over and worry over and fear about. If you are in Christ, there's this confidence in him. There's this freedom to just say, okay, Jesus, I love you more than anything else. What does it look like today for me to love you in the day that I've got in front of me? And guys, if we can get there, if we can get to that sweet spot, man, that's where we want to be. What are you doing with your freedom in Christ? Is your relationship with Jesus, maybe this is a good assessment for you. Is your relationship with Jesus more of a burden to you or a joy to you? Is your, does your relationship with Jesus amount to more of, 
I need to do, 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 or is it more of, man, I get to pursue Christ today. I get to pray. I get to be thankful. I get to share the gospel with somebody. I get to go to church tonight and worship. If you're out there and you're saying, man, my relationship with Jesus is just do, 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 do. Hopefully you'll have the time to talk about that tonight at small groups. But if that's where you're at, let me just tell you, that's not God's design for your relationship with Jesus. That's not freedom. That's submitting again to that yoke of slavery that Paul warned about at the beginning of our passage. Christ has set us free. How are you using your freedom? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that it's true that he has set us free in him and that we no longer have to submit to this yoke of slavery, this yoke that demanded full and and complete perfection from us, something none of us can do. God, we want to be holy. We want to be godly. We want to be Christ-like because we love Jesus. Lord, I pray that the those that are here tonight, that if there are those that are here that are saying, yeah, my, my, my Christianity is weighty. It's a burden. It's hard. It's heavy. It just feels like I've got all these things that I have to do. Lord, I, I just pray that tonight they'd be honest to bring that up, to talk about that with their leaders. Lord, that you would create in them a desire to have that freedom and that love for Jesus that just makes being a believer a joyful experience and something that we're able to just do because we can't wait to do it because we love Christ that much. God, increase our love, increase our affection for Jesus, I pray. In his name, amen.